thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith, and I have something so exciting to share with you. You see, Kim, Cindy, and myself, we're about to head overseas to go and adventure the mountains of Machu Picchu. So we've put together a series of five interviews that Cindy did last year, which were all designed to begin educating people about their health and their well-being. So we've decided that we're going to share those podcasts with you, and I think you're going to get so much out of them. We are so looking forward to sharing with you our adventures of Machu Picchu and the Inca Trails. We'll be recording podcasts while we're over there with all of the 15 women that are accompanying us. So we're super, super excited to bring that to you as soon as we get back. What I also want to share with you while you're listening is that Kim, Cindy, and I, while we're going to Machu Picchu this year, Next year, we're going to be going on another adventure, and we really want you to join us. So why don't you head on over to our Facebook page at allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat, and let us know where you'd like to go and if you'd like to join us on an adventure next year where you get to spend 10 to 15 days with us personally, 24-7. Now, doesn't that sound cool? (laughs) Enjoy the podcast. I'm going to see you on the other side. Welcome. This is one part of a series of educational conferences linking changing habits and clients with other experts to help make positive habit changes that improve health, energy and lifestyle in order for people to live more abundantly to not only help themselves and their family but also anyone else that they may touch in their lives. This information is not to be taken as medical advice and we encourage you to visit your healthcare provider for a checkup before beginning any diet regime or dietary changes. I'm Cindy O'Meara from Changing Habits and my guest is Daniel Vitalis. Daniel is a leading health, nutrition and personal development strategist as well as a nature-based philosopher, teaching that only invincible health is a product of living in alignment with our biological design and our role in the ecosystem. He incorporates the wisdom of indigenous people into our modern lives. He's entertaining, motivational and magnetic. Delivery style has made him an in-demand public speaker in North America and abroad. He is the creator of www.findaspring.com, a resource helping the public find clean, fresh, wild, free of man-made pollutants water and wherever they live. He can be found also at danielvitalis.com. Welcome, Daniel. It's um, wonderful to have you kind of down under. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. It's really fun fun to talk to people like yourself. Yeah, wonderful. I'd like to start with understanding where you've come from, why you got interested in, in nutrition and, and you know, you did all these things and then evolved to where you are now. So give us your story. Well, you know, years ago when I was about, I'd say I was about 15 years old, I was, I was, I encountered a really influential person who um, turned me on to the idea that we could be changed through the food we ate. And early on in my teenage years, I kind of came up with the question for myself, if if I'm a natural creature on this planet, in other words, if human beings are natural animals, if we're actually from this planet, do we have an eco-niche? Do we have a, actually a diet that is zoologically, um, we're biologically adapted to? If so, what is it and how can we eat it? And what would we become like if we lived in alignment with our biological design? And I'd say now it's been a geez, it's been more than a decade and a half I've been asking that question and going deeper and deeper down that path. It's been a long and interesting road and it's led me on a lot of different um di- to a lot of different dietary approaches evolving as you said myself up to where I am today um and I got to say where I'm at today is really as much as I can um showing people how they can in their modern lives approximate the diet of our ancestors not because uh we need to go backward in time but because our ancestors were living uh in alignment with their biological design they were living like 
um, like the wild version of the Homo sapien and eating that way. We've come so far from that that actually what's happening today, as you know, is we're we actually are seeing degeneration rather than um, really good evolution and adaptation. Our bodies are actually breaking down. And so one of the big reasons that I see today is that it's because we're no longer eating uh, the foods that we used to eat or even trying to approximate them. And so what I'm doing today is just showing people how they can not not necessarily have to make drastic changes, uh, but actually can begin to adapt their diet to look like what it, uh, their original diet would have been, and uh, therefore they can experience the health benefits uh, or the health that is their birthright. Yeah. So at 15, you were actually thinking about this. You must have been very different to a lot of 15-year-olds um, today who are not questioning this. So at 15, is that when you went, I'm not eating meat anymore, I'm going to become a vegetarian? Is that is that what happened? You just decided one day after meeting this person? But please let me know how you evolved from a 15-year-old that, you know, usually is out there, doesn't even think about their food and just wants to um, be a teenage boy as opposed to, you know, changing it and having that thought pattern. Well, I, I wouldn't, um, yeah, I've been a very... I've been going against the grain in my culture since uh, as early back as I can remember. And, and when I was quite young, really wondering why people weren't thinking about some of these things, it seemed to me that the act of eating and everything associated with it um, was important, and the people around me didn't seem to think so. And uh, so, yeah, I, you know, it was a progression. What happened for me was was somebody introduced me to a book out of South Africa about the idea of eating a fruitarian diet. And that was really appealed, that really appealed to the part of me, the extremist part of me. And, uh, you know, as an American, as an extremist, as a boy growing up at that time in American history, the idea of doing something extreme like that and making that statement was really attractive to me. So I uh, I embraced the idea of a raw food diet as a, of a vegetarian diet, um, and a diet that today I think is really extreme and probably very dangerous. Uh, but I took it on as a path to try to understand what my natural diet was, um, at that time, you know, I was operating at, you know, the teenage mind. I didn't have as much information as I had today, but I had the same drive that's in me now, and uh, I pursued it wholeheartedly. And like I said, it led me all around the United States. It led me around North America. It's uh, led me around quite a bit of the world um, exploring food and exploring food in different places, um, exploring meat diets, exploring vegetarian diets, exploring raw food diets and cooked food diets in an effort to just try to understand where we come from and how we used to live, not just in alignment with our original nutrition design, but actually in our ecological niche. So you, you started as a vegetarian and then um, why did you then go to veganism? Why did you... Conti you know, continue on this path and how long did you continue on this path and what made you realize that you were getting sicker, not better? Well, I got to say that in the beginning it wasn't that I was getting sicker. So in the beginning what happened was you know, I started letting go of meats. Now at that time in American history, there wasn't the options available to the average person that I'm seeing today. So at that time, there wasn't a distinction between um, organic and commercial. There wasn't a distinction between grass-fed and grain-fed. We didn't even know those options existed at that time in um, in the collective culture. Of course, that's always existed in subculture, but that wasn't something I'd been exposed to. So I think the initial switch to vegetarianism, giving up the, the really pus-filled, you know, corn-fed milk, that was a really good option for me at the time, and I noticed some health benefit. And then giving up um, red meats, and then giving up poultry, giving up fish, slowly, slowly, my body was cleansing itself of all the industrial pollutants that had accumulated in me, had bioaccumulated, and I felt really good. And um, that, But I, I didn't make a move towards veganism for a couple of years, so there was about a two-year period where I lived as what we call here a lacto-ovo-vegetarian. And uh, at that time, I was really into weightlifting and, and uh, weight training, bodybuilding. And I had very high protein needs, and so I, I wasn't trying to do veganism at the time. And what happened for me was I had slowly started to add more animal food back into my diet. Somebody handed me a book about veganism. I'd never been exposed to the idea, and I got caught up in the belief that maybe this was our biological design because most of the vegan community feels that 
human beings were originally vegans and have had some kind of fall from grace. And I got kind of duped into that idea. So I took on veganism. I felt great for a couple of years. Um, the reason being, what I understand now, is that a lot of the nutrients that are missing in a vegan diet are stored in our body fat. And they can be stored for a really long time. So it allows somebody to live for even years sometimes without these nutrients because our body is designed biologically to go through feast and famine. And so throughout history, there have been times where people have gone on plant diets because the, uh, the hunting wasn't good um, or there would be times of lack and so they would live on only plant foods. This is built into our biology and is very cleansing for us, but after a time, of course, we go back on to um, animal foods as well. Well, I tried living 10 years without animal foods. By the end of it, all of those wonderful benefits I had initially felt were gone. My energy levels were crashed. My immune system was crashing. I was developing cold sores and fungal infections, and um, I couldn't gain any weight. I couldn't hold weight on my body. And, and for my height, I have a fairly uh, large frame, but I, was, I had gotten very, very thin. And uh, it took me a long time to, un to really get clear with what was causing that, that it was the veganism because – Really, I see today veganism is like a type of religion, and once you're really indoctrinated into it, you kind of want to blame anything but your religion for what's causing the problems that you're experiencing. It's it's quite similar to my story. I became a vegetarian at um, about 13. I just came home from camp one day and said to my mum, no more, not eating it. And I didn't eat meat again until I was 29. And, and I ate it because I was... I was so, I wanted it so much. It was like this um, burning in, in my, my psyche and in myself that I needed to eat it. And I, I kind of went into this shop and, and got this beautiful delicatessen sausage and ate it. <laughs> and it was weird. It was just the weirdest thing. And about a couple of days later, I found out I was pregnant. Oh, so, wow. yeah, so I thought it was, I'd always eaten well. And I thought, well, it's my body saying, you better do this. And I started right. eating meat again. And then... Now, when you, it's not until hindsight, and I'm sure you're the same, it's not until hindsight that you look back and you go, geez, you know, I had a lot of colds then, um, I had a weight problem then, I was at the University of Colorado and everybody was on a diet back in the you know, early 80s, um, I, you know, and I, I got, um, I, had mens I had no menstrual cycle for two years, everything was going wrong, but I didn't, like you, it's like a religion, you go, well, it's not my religion that's the problem. <laughs> Right. It was everything else. So it was yeah. it's interesting. I came out of the raw food vegan community, and and I think there's a slightly different um, spin there than there is in the um, the more mainstream vegan community. And what what my community was obsessed with is the idea that everything going on in your body was caused by toxicity. And so the word toxin got thrown around. Sort of, uh, it just became a blanket statement for anything bad in the world. In the way that, for the Christian religion, maybe the word sin has become kind of the blanket term for anything ungodly. Well, toxins became the sort of blanket. And you know, if you would ever ask me sp to be specific about what toxins, I wouldn't have been able to answer. I just thought everything was toxicity. The problem with that mindset is that whenever you get sick, your initial belief is that there must be something you've got to get out of you rather than that there's something that you're missing. So what was happening is as I was becoming more deficient in fat-soluble vitamins, in long-chain fats, in um, more advanced B vitamins, as I became deficient in those and actually needed to put them into me, I thought the sickness was coming from, a, from something that I needed to get out of me. So my approach would be to cleanse myself even more, not realizing that I was just stripping my body down to such bare brass tacks that I was surviving uh, I was staying alive, and because of all the superfoods I was using, I was really strung out and feeling sort of high all the time, didn't really realize what was going on. And so um, I see this all the time, and I speak to it all the time, because um, despite the changes I've made, I'm still very intimately connected to the American raw food community. And um, and so I speak to these people all the time, and one of the missions that I have is is to to get people to step back from their religion and take a real good look at what's happened. And, um, you know, one of my favorite uh, questions to pose to an audience, Cindy, when there's a group of people together, and I can tell that the group has a predominantly vegan um, mind state, I'll say, everybody in the room, put your hand up if you know somebody who's a vegan. 
and they'll all put their hand up, and then I'll say, uh, now take your hand, uh, leave your hand up if you know somebody has been a vegan for five years. And when you say that, most of the hands will come down. And then I'll say, okay, leave your hand up if you know a vegan over 10 years. And then there's very few hands left up. And I'll say, how about 20 years? By the time you get to 30 and 40 years, almost nobody ever has their hand up. Occasionally, somebody will know a longer-term vegan. But once you get up to 50 or 60, nobody knows anybody who's been a vegan that long. And uh, definitely, I haven't met anyone who knows a person who's been a vegan their entire life and has lived a long life. So once all the hands are down, I'll say, okay, so you're basing your belief in veganism off zero evidence. Because if you don't know someone who's done it their whole life, then you have zero evidence that it's possible. Therefore, you're, fu- you're functioning off of a kind of illusion or fantasy or hope or dream, but not off reality. If we can't look at any population that's successfully done this and had children successfully for, any, uh, for several generations, then it's absolutely untested. Therefore, there should be a kind of... Um, disclaimer before somebody becomes a vegan <laughs> like uh, hey you're you're doing an experiment on yourself it's untested and we co- we commend you on your belief here but please know you're you're taking this into your own hands because there's no one we can look at to say yeah this is working it's a good point and um and what you i i realize do is that you've really gone back and studied anthropology and really understood you know, our evolution and um, would you like to, you know, expand on the anthropology of our our diet basically as well as our evolution? Yeah, well, really interestingly, you know, Homo sapien as we, in the form that we're in now is is estimated to be about a 200,000 year old species. And there was some cousin species who shared the globe with us, other, um, other, other organisms bipeds in the the genus Homo, but we're the only one left. Now, before us, essentially, was Homo erectus, and before Homo erectus was Homo habilis, and before Homo habilis, there's several forms before us, stretching back our genus, maybe 500,000 years. The entire time, we have fossil records showing that we were hunters. Previous to that, there was a time before our genus existed, and uh, we were in a a protoform that is called um, Australopithecus. And a lot of people know about the famous skeleton Lucy. And that's a much more ape-like skeleton than anything human. looks a lot more like a chimpanzee. And for a long time it was believed that Lucy and her kind were exclusively frugivores, eating primarily uh, fruits and, and lots of plant food. In the last year, evidence has come out that um, in that rock layer, 3.4 million years ago, that the Australopithecines were actually fracturing bones with rudimentary stone tools to get marrow out of them and were actually cutting meat away from bones. Now, this might have been scavenged. Later on, as we take on the Havilene form, we started to learn the use of fire. And by then, we're making pretty advanced stone tools. By the time Homo erectus is on the scene, we're full-fledged hunters. And by the time our species emerges, we already hunt and already cook. So what's fascinating about that is there's no time in history where Homo sapien learns how to hunt or no time in history where we learn how to cook, we already were doing that when we first emerge as a species. It's already innate in us in the way that, you know, squirrels didn't have to learn how to get nuts. They already do that. We already knew how to hunt and how to cook. So it it takes away the idea, I think, that a lot of vegans have that there was some kind of Garden of Eden time where all we ate was, you know, fruits and nothing ever died in order for us to eat. I mean, that's never really been true. And if we do a survey of all of the indigenous people, and, and, you know, as you know, there's not a lot of indigenous people left on the planet in their um, hunter-gatherer form, but if we were to survey all of the hunter-gatherers around the world that have been studied or were studied, we see that there's never been a group that were vegetarians, no less vegans. In fact, the lowest percentage of animal food that I've been able to uncover in any traditional hunter-gatherer society is the Hadza, um, the bush men of the Kalahari, and they eat about 45% of their calories from animal food. So roughly just under half. Now that's the lowest I've seen because usually it averages around 55%, and as we move north in latitude or extreme south in latitude, we see that that number goes up because when we get to the Inuit people, 
um, you know, in the far northern latitudes, what, what are often called the Eskimo, uh, we see their diets being con- comprised of 85, 90, 95 percent animal food. And they were some of the healthiest people in the world previous to the introduction of, of westernized food. So what's really interesting is that, and here's where I'm at today, I recognize that as a species, Homo sapien, when we look at all the anthropological evidence, is extremely adaptable. We are the principal omnivore of the planet. We can literally eat just about anything and through our technology make almost any living thing edible. Now, we can eat very high amounts of meat and we can eat very high amounts of plant, but there's never been a culture that's eaten only plants, although there are some cultures that ate only meat. So we know that an exclusively anti-vegan diet is possible But as far as vegan diets, we have very little evidence. Now, after we leave our hunter-gatherer state and become agriculturalists, the amount of plant food goes way up. This starts about 10,000 years ago. And we see the first vegetarian culture emerge in India. Um, And, of course, the Hindus, as most of us know, are largely vegetarian. But they're the kind of vegetarian that eats a lot of dairy products, a lot of butter and ghee and yogurt. And that, for them, was a meat replacement So we see for the first time in history, dairy emerges as a meat replacement, lending the idea of karma and the idea that eating animals or eating a vegetarian diet is is more karma-free. However, those people consumed an awful lot of dairy products, hence the sacred cow. So what we see is vegetarianism is possible if there's a, a dairy product substituting the meat. It's possible. It doesn't create the most robust, healthy culture in the world, but it's possible. Um, but we still have no evidence of Homo sapien living as a vegan anywhere, and um, really the vegans today are the first, and they're really the the only examples. And you know, we really only see vegetarianism in older cultures as a cleanse, or we see it as a monastic concept. In other words, monks or nuns will do it, but we don't see it as a way for people to live. One of the comments that you've made is, and I absolutely love it: the human race can make any any living thing edible or anything edible, you know, like we look at the food that we did eat and the food that we eat today and it's vastly different. So, you know, you're talking about the anthropology as we have those beautiful foods, but now these days, you know, we have domesticated meats that um, where the cows are in feedlots. We've got chickens that, you know, are in substandard conditions with horrible things happening to them, pigs. I, my uncles um, owned pig farms, and I just remember smelling a pig every time I left the farm. I never, ever <laughs> didn't smell good. Um, you know, so I've, I've seen these farms and and what's happening to them. And, and the, you talk about the difference between our wild counterparts, not only in our meat, but in our fruits and vegetables. So can um, we head towards that direction and talk about the difference of what we used to eat um, probably only 200 years ago for the mainstay, I'm not talking about industrialised nations, but for the mainstay compared to what we're eating now. Well, that's a really interesting point. And before I do, I want to say this one piece. Um, I really respect the idea that many vegetarians and vegans have taken on, which is I want to go vegetarian or vegan because I don't want to support all this industrialized factory farming. And I really appreciate that, but I'm somebody who sees all living things as equal. In other words, all all things that are biological, I don't have really a hierarchy of this animal is superior to this plant, which is superior to this bacteria. I kind of see it all as equal life forms. Uh, So it's kind of like if a person said, I'm never going to eat plants again because of Monsanto monocrop genetically modified corn. Because I don't believe in that, I'm never going to eat plants again. You know, just because factory farmed animals exist doesn't mean you have to buy factory farmed animals. Therefore, it kind of negates a lot of that argument for me. But when I look at, see, a, a very big shift happened in human beings 10,000 years ago, roughly 10,000 years ago. We started farming for the first time. Now, around the world, people ate wild food. I mean, there wasn't farmed food available for people. Everybody was eating wild food, just like all the other species. We were gatherers and hunters. And about 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent, and simultaneously over in uh, the New World, we're now seeing this also happen simultaneously in South America, 
people started farming and they learned how to plant seeds. And it, this began as a horticultural endeavor, gardening, and it turned into the mass-scale agriculture we see today. But it's important <clears throat> that people recognize when you walk into a supermarket, the foods that you see in that marketplace very few of those even resemble the foods that come from the wild environment. In other words, there aren't any wild cows. The last cow, the last predecessor of the cow, became, you know, died in the 1600s, and so that animal, the aurochs, is extinct. Uh, it is as similar to a cow as um, a chihuahua is to a gray wolf. The chihuahua, of course, comes from the gray wolf. Technically, the chihuahua shares a genome with the gray wolf, but no longer resembles it in phenotype nor in its behavior. In the same way, the cow does not resemble its predecessor animal, its progenitor. Well, neither does the pig, neither does the sheep, neither does the goat, um, neither does broccoli, kale, spinach, cauliflower, bananas, apples, oranges, or pears. None of those things are found growing wild in the state we're used to them. They've all been changed through a type of genetic modification, but the kind that we call breeding. So human beings have learned how to breed, downbreed organisms and create mutant strains that we now grow. Um, but none of these foods come from the wild. And unfortunately, not only is their appearance changed, but their nutrition's changed such that when you eat a cow, a goat, a pig, an apple, a banana, or a pear, you no longer get the same nutrition that you would have got from that wild plant, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, what's even stranger to me, and a lot of people don't realize now, if I said to you, Cindy, do you want to have, I know you like uh, mutton, would you like to have some cloned sheep? You'd probably, you'd probably be kind of appalled by the concept. Like, now I don't really want to eat a cloned animal. What very few people realize is that every banana they eat is a clone. Every apple they eat is a clone. Every orange, these fruits that we grow in our orchards are clones. They're grown from cuttings and grafts or even lab-created. They're no longer grown from seeds, such the banana has no seed today. Now, its wild predecessor, of course, does and is a very fertile plant, but the, the plant today that we think of as the banana, particularly the Cavendish banana, has no seed. I mean, it's literally sterile. And that's one of the problems with clones. So people are, are today, they think, oh, I'm having a natural food by eating this banana. In truth, while they've made a, a good, at least they're eating a living food with, you know, biological food, better than eating a processed food, but is a sterile clone. That's a little freaky to me. Uh, and the more you look into our food supply, the more you see, wow, this stuff has been manipulated for thousands of years and really doesn't resemble a natural food at all. Is there that food around? Like, um, it, It's interesting, Daniel. The way I found out about you is that one day someone said to me, um, it was actually James, who's the producer of Food Matters, he said to me, Cindy, you should look up Daniel Vitalis. And, and I heard your name. And, and then the next thing I hear is, um, from somebody else, oh, oh, you should look up Daniel Vitalis. And then my husband comes home from his medical doctor, who is Dr. Greg Emerson, and Greg has invited him to spend some time with you in South America <laughs> looking oh, for wild food. Oh, great in Peru. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just, I just went, I've got to know who this, this person is, you know, three <laughs> times in one week. Yeah. Obviously, I'm meant to find out about him. So, of course, that's when I looked you up. So this is one thing that you do. You go looking for wild food. Could, would you tell yeah. us about your adventures and, and how you do it and what the wild banana is? Because I'm fascinated with this. I, you know, like I talk about natural foods but not wild foods. So let's, let's go there. Okay. Well, you know, it all really boils down to genetics. And I'm going to pose a question to you and your audience that very few people, in fact, nobody I've yet encountered in the world of nutrition or health has asked yet. And um, I'm shocked that no one's asking this question, so I'll pose it for you. And it's, does the genetics of what we eat matter? Because so far we've thought about, is it organic or commercial? Is it, uh, does it have vitamins and minerals? Is it, um, you know, was it grown in good soil? We have all these questions like that about our food. Is it plant or animal? Is it processed or unprocessed? Um, but nobody's asking, what about the genes of what we eat? In other words, is there a difference between eating wild lettuce and conventional lettuce? Um, I think when we start talking about genetically modified foods, we see that, whoa, wait, maybe DNA matters. Uh, so if I say, hey, here's a tomato, it's just like every other tomato except it has fish genes in it, you might be a little turned off by that idea. 
Um, I am. I'm very turned off by the idea. And I don't know to what degree genetically modified foods have gotten into Australia, but they're, they're unlabeled here in the United States. Uh, it's a big issue for us. Now, most people are not interested in GMOs uh, because of something. It has something to do with the DNA, doesn't it? Well, what if we deepen that question? Is there a difference between eating a conventional banana and the wild banana, which is so riddled with seeds it almost can't be eaten and has to be cooked, can't be eaten raw? Um, it could forcibly be chewed up and swallowed, but it's, it, it needs to be cooked to release its sugars. Um, is there a difference? It's like saying, is there a difference between eating a, a gray wolf and a, a dachshund? I think most of us could see, wow, there's something <laughs> different about them. And it really boils down to genes and DNA. So what I've been doing for the last few years is developing my skills in wild foraging food and in hunting food and um, exploring what it means to eat wild food and what the differences in wild food are. And I can tell you right now, Cindy, one of the big differences when it comes to plant food is that wild plants are very medicinal. Today, wild plants, usually in the nutrition world, are referred to as herbs. And we practice this type of medicine called herbalism. Now, bear with me, if you will. Do you, you have the plant dandelion there in Australia? Yes, we do. All right. Now, most people would recognize if they went out and ate dandelion that it would taste very bitter. Mm. The reason it tastes very bitter is because it's very rich in medicines, and medicines are typically what we call alkaloids, and they're bitter. And so if we were to eat wild dandelion, we would expect it to be very bitter. However, in herbalism, what we would do, rather than eat the thing, is we would put it into hot water and make a tea from it and drink the water, right? And that would give us the yeah. medicinal action of the dandelion. That'd be called the, that's what we call making a tea in herbalism, an infusion. The interesting thing is if you were going to eat wild dandelion, you would do the opposite. You'd make the tea, you'd throw the water away, and you'd eat the leaves, because what happens when you eat wild plants is they're so rich in medicine, you've got to find a way to get the medicine out, or you're actually going to poison yourself. In the past, what happened is people would cook wild plants in water, throw out that water, and eat the plant, and there would be some residual medicine. So they didn't have to practice herbalism. The very act of eating was herbalism. Today, what we do is we grow food that has no medicine left in it. So we take a plant... A great example is the wild lettuce. Now, the wild lettuce, where all our lettuces come from, is a bit of an opiate. It's actually a slightly narcotic plant, and it's been used since the time of the Egyptians as an opiate. It's lettuce sap, or lactocarium, which we call lettuce opium, is a, a hypnotic and sedative and has been prescribed, even in the British and U.S. pharmacopoeias and codexes, as a hypnotic. You can actually smoke it and get a little bit of a high from it. It's actually sold as a marijuana substitute. Now, that's the substance that comes out of lettuce when it's wild. Now, what we've done is we've bred lettuces to have none of that left so that the lettuce we have today lacks its medicine. That means if you eat lettuces today, you get the food part, but you don't get the medicine part, which means you end up with a net deficiency in medicine. And a lot of people are used to thinking of deficiencies of minerals or deficiencies of vitamins, but what happens if you eat food with no medicine? Well, you end up with a medicine deficiency because domesticated plants don't have medicine left in them. That's why they're not bitter anymore. The wild lettuce is very bitter because it's so rich in medicine. This means if you have a, a net deficiency in medicine, that means your body is going to get sick eventually. You better go find some medicine. Most people find pharmaceutical medicine. Pharmaceutical medicine is a way of – it's kind of like taking synthetic vitamins because there's not enough vitamins in your diet – doesn't necessarily work well, but it's an option. If your food has no medicine left in it, if all your plants are domesticated, you need medicine. So either you go towards herbalism, you go towards pharmaceuticals, or you suffer the effects of no medicine. And that's almost worse than either. So it's a really interesting game we're playing. Now, what I found is by going into nature and harvesting, learning the plants, harvesting the plants, not only do I bypass the need to use a lot of herbal medicine – my health gets better, the plants are more nutritious, but what's even better for me is that I've started to understand my natural diet. I'm starting to answer the question that I originally asked and that I talked about in the beginning of our talk. What's our natural diet? Well, it turns out our natural diet is wild things, things that live outside. And if you think about these wild things, they're very tough because they have to compete in the wild environment. That's so different. If you think about your garden, the plants you grow in your garden, you have to literally protect them all the time because they're too weak to live outside. 
I mean, they need special, lofty soil. They need fences. You've got to get the slugs off them because they have no way to fight them off. They, they literally, every animal will come by and eat them. You have to almost wage war against wild nature in order to grow domesticated plants. They're too weak. The truth is the same with your sheep, right? The wild sheep, the ram, can live outside. It's a very robust animal. But the domestic sheep has to be protected because it's totally vulnerable, the same is true of little lap dogs that we breed from wolves. They can't live outside without protection because they're too vulnerable. Well, when we eat only vulnerable things all the time, our bodies really weaken. And that's why we've lost the robustness of our ancestors. And, and you're so right. Like you, You're just bringing up so many things here that... You're thinking differently. That's what you're doing. You're thinking outside the square because we're thinking within... Um, a certain square at the moment and we're getting sicker and sicker and sicker and you know we've been talking about diet you know there's every diet under the sun that I've heard about in the last 30 years but what you're doing is you're thinking very differently about the food that we're eating and <laughs> we are not a robust society we're like the chihuahua we are yeah. we can't live out in the wild there, there are so many sick people so what you're talking about is it's just to me it's um it's wonderful, and people need to think about these things and perhaps like in Australia, we've got so many wild foods it's the Australian yeah. Aboriginals have lived here for sixty thousand years up until probably fifty years ago on the hunter gatherer diet so yeah. in Australia, this is something that is achievable, most people don't want to do it, of course. But for people well, you like know what? You, you know what? It's a very, it's very fun to just begin exploring it. For instance, yeah. you know, you don't, you don't go onto a. One of the things I love about a wild food diet, by the way, is that I don't know anybody who actually does one completely. Um, it takes a lot of the pretentiousness out of it because with vegan diets or raw food diets or zone diets or, or you know, any other innumerable diet, people can go on it overnight and then they get into that whole pompous and pretentiousness around the idea of, oh, I'm on such and such diet. And uh, you can't do that with wild foods. You'd, you'd, you'd die, literally die, because you, you'd starve to death because you'd, you have to learn. It's years of immersion to learn how to do this. One of my concerns is that the people who know how to do it are disappearing from the planet so fast that we're not able to catalog all the information. But um, when what's different? You said that I'm, I'm thinking differently. It's because I'm eating differently, and it's causing me to think differently. And what I think is the difference between what I'm saying and what I usually hear in the world of diet um, of nutrition most nutritionists, all they're doing is they take the, the group of foods available at your standard supermarket and they rearrange them into different diet plans. But they're all talking about the foods that are available in the supermarket. So some people say only eat from this side of the supermarket or from this side or, you know, I eat from this aisle and this aisle or combining all these same foods into different variations than, you know, packaging them, putting their trademark on it and writing their book about it. And none, the thing is, is that the foods that are natural foods aren't available in the supermarket. Only a couple are. Literally a few are available. But, but for the most part, they're all talking about the same stuff. And that's why it, it's a big runaround. Now, what I've noticed when you start talking about indigenous people is most of us from the Western world are so indoctrinated into our culture, what you call the box, that we don't realize how subconsciously prejudiced and racist we are against indigenous people. So... One of the most amazing indigenous groups that I've ever um, read about is the aboriginals from where you are now. Um, mm -hmm. However, for the average Westerner, uh, if you said, wow, look how amazing these people are, there'd be, there's a lot of racism that comes up first because what people see is, wow, they don't even own any possessions, they don't have houses, they don't have clothes, they don't have cars, credentials. You know, I would not want to live like that is what most people see. However, if you could get past that and you could say, wait a second, how is their health? How, is, how robust are they? Uh, you take the average Westerner out of their cityscape. Can they survive? No, they're like the Chihuahua. Can they go two, three days without water? No way. Can they go two, three days without food? Probably not. Can they go 20 minutes without a phone call? I mean, we literally are so, we're so softened by our culture and by the foods that we eat. We see these people and we pity them. They see us and pity us because of how weak we are and how sick we are and how, and here's the truth of it, degenerated we've become. Because as I said, the, the wild lettuce, full of its medicine, 
is the the progenitor to the domestic lettuce. The gray wolf is the progenitor to every type of um, domestic dog we have today. Well, the aboriginals, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, the Inuit, the Native Americans, the, the Native Africans, they are the progenitors of our species. In other words, their genetic stock is where we all come from. But we're not improvements on their stock. We're actually degenerates from their stock. So pitted in our natural environment, we would fail and they would thrive. That's what's so interesting. So now we're in this, this world exists. We're not going back to a hunter-gatherer world anytime soon. So the question is, how do we merge these two things? How do we begin to incorporate some of what they know, some of what they did back into our lives? Because if we don't, we put ourselves at such extreme risk. In the same way, and most people don't know this, but the Cavendish banana, the yellow eating banana, um, most people who study this know that that banana is probably going to be extinct soon. There's so many diseases now attacking the Cavendish banana, and there's no seed. Every Cavendish banana has to be grown from a cutting. Uh, so it if a disease comes along that can't be combated, that banana will be extincted uh, in the same way that our species is now facing diseases that we actually can't – not only are we not able to fully combat them, but we, don't, we lack the genetic stock and integrity to, to, to rebuild ourselves to what we were. So now we're faced with how do we readapt ourselves to a planet because – We've been living in a kind of virtual reality outside of our elements, outside of the planet. We've, we live in our little controlled boxes where the temperature's controlled and the light's controlled and the humidity's controlled. And everything has been altered from the original landscape. We're almost like aliens visiting this planet. And um, unfortunately, we've become so energy dependent to maintain that that we're actually um, risking our own extinction, sad to say. Yeah, and, and this is what's um, is so disturbing. I, I sometimes um, wonder if it's going to make changes. I, I was actually speaking to someone the other day, and, and they basically said, well, those people will die out, Cindy, and then a new group will come, and I'm like going, that's pretty scary. That there's a, you know, they're, they're saying that there is an obesity epidemic that's global. And I just think if all of these people... Um, and not even thinking differently because they are eating, well, what they are, they're, they're eating Western food, they're thinking Western. Whereas when we start to change our diet, we start to think differently. I, I'm doing a program, um, and I've asked for applications for the program. And out of the applications that came in, I would say that 70% of the people were depressed or on antidepressants. Mm, wow. And I just started to think, what, you know, what is happening here? You know, like... This, this world we're eating Western food, yet we're told to go on antidepressants instead of change our food. How, like, how do we go, would you say, like, I'm interested because, you know, I eat naturally, yes, and I always have. Uh, I've never had any medications, no antibiotics, Panadol, nothing. I was brought up in a hippie um, <laughs> lifestyle with my parents. So that's where I learnt all of this. I call myself very fortunate um, that mm -hmm, this is what's yes. happening. So, Daniel, where do we go? How do we get somebody that's in this Western lifestyle to, I think you've made me think differently, and I'm hoping everybody's listening thinking differently, but all right, what do we act? We've got to now act on this. So give me how we can start doing this. All right, well, there's, I'll give you, uh, just I'm going to give you rapid fire a bunch of ideas that occur to me when I think about this. And of course, we could do this for 10 hours, but um, <laughs> let's, get, let's make it real simple. Get critical about medical doctors, about the medical institution, and about the pharmaceutical industry because, you know, people like yourself and people like myself who started this very young, we might forget how many people are using pharmaceutical drugs. And uh, what's fascinating to me is the way that this is, how man manipulative this is because, again, if your food lacks medicine, then you have to turn to some alternative form of medicine. For a lot of people, that's pharmaceuticals. When you eat fully wild plants, you'd be amazed at how psychoactive some of these plants actually are. In fact, you probably know this, 80% of the medicines that the pharmaceutical industry creates, they first get from plants. Now, when you're eating those plants, you don't need those pharmaceuticals. Interestingly, 
doctors here in the United States, they take what's called the Hippocratic Oath. In other words, they take an oath based on the writings of Hippocrates. Now, Hippocrates says, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. But if your food has no medicine, there's no way to make your medicine. He's not talking about domesticated foods when he says that. He's talking about these wild plants. They have medicine in them. The average person can't do that. So here's what they, they would be wise to do. In the beginning, the best you can do is just kind of switch over to organic food. You switch over to organic food, you start reducing the amount of pharmaceuticals in your life, whether those are over-the-counter or prescription. You just start reducing them down, and you start doing organic food. Once you've gotten down with the organic food, it's time to start looking at local food, food grown by farmers. You can find maybe going to farmer's markets, growing your own food, taking some foraging classes, and learn how to get your food closer to home. Continue reducing out and getting off of those pharmaceuticals. Next step would be to learn a little bit about herbalism and how you can bring these wild plant medicines into your life. Wild plants and herbalism are pretty synonymous. Over time, getting more and more confident and taking more and more classes or spending more time with people who can bring you out in the field and introduce you to wild foods slowly and or maybe you can find people who hunt and forage you can trade with. And really interesting, if you ever go to very high-end restaurants, the kind of restaurants that the wealthy and elite eat at, you'll notice that almost everything on the menu is wild, grass-fed, organic, and local. That's an interesting thing. You can go to very high-end restaurants, and they pay foragers to get wild food. Why? Because it tastes better, it's fresher, it's, it's higher in nutrition. And nutrition translates into flavor for chefs. Uh, you can get wild game and grass-fed food from high-end restaurants. That's also interesting. Start eating like the elite eat, the people who've manipulated our diet for a long time now. They don't eat what we eat, <laughs> ever. They eat, they eat liver, they eat bone marrow, they eat caviar, they eat grass-fed animals, they eat wild plants and wild mushrooms, right? You go to a very high-end restaurant in the spring where it is right now here and, and it's morels on the menu. They don't grow those. They pay foragers to go into the wild to pick that food to feed to the wealthy elite. That's fascinating. So you can begin to eat like wealthy people eat and guess what? If you want it to be, it can be free. But it's more than that. We need to reapproximate. If you think about, if you're living in Australia, if you think a little bit about the life of an Aboriginal person in the outback, how could you recreate that? Well, one way would be to stop wearing the little coffins on your feet called shoes as much as you can. Now, of course, when you go certain places, you're going to have to. But can you get your feet exposed to the ground again so you have electrical conductivity with the ground? That's essential. That's something we're biologically designed for. When we put a rubber insulator between our foot and the ground, we actually cut ourselves off from the free flow of electrons between the earth and ourselves. This is crazy. That's madness, actually. And it's something that native peoples don't do. So maybe we can begin to reapproximate. When we exercise, we can think, hey, you know what? The way people exercise in the gym, it's like they're training their bodies to become like robots. Maybe we can begin to move more like animals than like robots. Maybe we can explore functional fitness instead of the standard kind of weight training and things that people are doing today. We, we, what we want to do is start reapproximating. We're not going to go out and become hunter-gatherers, of course. We're not even, it's like saying we're going to set all the chihuahuas free to go hunt in the wild. <laughs> you know, a chihuahua can't take a deer down anymore. We are not really fit to live outside anymore, but we can begin to do things like expose ourselves to warm and cold again. Rather than always climate controlling your house, what if you open the windows? And what if your body got hot when it was hot out and your body got cold when it was cold out? What if uh, you use things like saunas to approximate summer heat again and you sweat things out of your body? What if you got on wild spring water instead of drinking tap water? What if we begin to explore what it would be like to live outside even if we really still live inside? What if we just started to recreate it? A great example would be like if you took a chimpanzee and you put it in a zoo even though it's not really in its natural habitat anymore, you would try to make the zoo cage as much like its natural habitat as possible. I suggest people want to get really healthy. They want to think different. They want to change their minds, their bodies, their spirits, their whole energy field, everything about them. You really want to make changes. Start to make your artificial habitat as much like your natural habitat as possible, and then you'll be able to see the kind of obvious changes that will take place. 
makes so much sense. And I, I've been writing madly while you've been talking <laughs> so that, you know, we can, I can perhaps put something out for everybody, your steps of how we can do it. it it's interesting. We live in a very hot climate um, and a lot of people, you know, they, they complain about the heat um, all the time, whereas um, I know with our household, the doors are open, the windows are open. I, we don't put air conditioning on. We have fans. Um, and because we live in a hot climate, we don't wear shoes. <laughs> Can I ask you a question, Cindy? Where, yes. where you live now, I've not visited Australia, and I'm not particularly familiar with the geography there, uh, but I understand a little bit about the climate. And my experience is that even when I'm in very hot places, if I'm outside at night, and maybe this is true where you are, if you were to sleep outside at night on the ground where you live, would it actually be pretty cool come the middle of the night? Would you probably want... Not even want... summer here. But how well, about where throughout, I live. throughout much of the year or like throughout parts of the year, right, I would assume? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so like um, this, the deserts is cold, yes. What's really interesting is everywhere I've been on the planet so far, there's a, there's a marked difference between nighttime temperature and daytime temperature. Even if it's not drastic in the summers, the nighttime is colder than the daytime. And then we, so there's one rhythm, it's a 24-hour cycle where it goes from warmer to cooler and cooler back to warmer. And then there's the 365-day cycle where unless you're right on the equator, you go from summer to winter. And so you have a period of the year that's very hot and a period that's very cool. And of course, where you are in latitude determines how drastic that is. But there's a rhythm to it. What we're doing today in our culture is keeping always the temperature at the same so there's no cycle left. We're trying to live outside of the natural cycle. So, you know, if I keep my house at 70 degrees, morning, noon, and night, all the time, all year long, I've created such an artificiality. My body is still paleolithic because my genes come from 200,000 years of living outside. So to do that means I'm living outside of my biological design and I'm waging war against my genes, as opposed to if I let these rhythms in. There's some great research from the HeartMath Institute that shows that if your heartbeat is the same all the time, if there's no um, rhythm to your, if your heart rate doesn't change, that actually you're very sick. We used to think you were healthier the more regular your heart rate is. Turns out that's not true. Your heart rate should be changing all the time. Well, similarly, your body temperature and metabolic temperature should be changing all the time. And part of the way we do that is exposing ourselves to our environments you know, in the bottom line, really, what am I saying? Open your windows, open your doors. People are boarding themselves inside. Or go camping. Get a tent and go camping and, and, mm-hmm. and figure out what this is about. Get out into the wild. Yeah, I, even I, a I little bit. Love how you're thinking. Yeah. Look, I just I I had a question right at the beginning um, that we were we were talking about, and and I want to kind of go there because. You were talking about when you were vegetarian veganism that you started bodybuilding. And like to go from bodybuilding, which I, and, and you've been talking about this, this, um, um, this whole fitness of functional fitness versus bodybuilding. Can you tell me the difference between functional fitness? What would you do for functional fitness as opposed to what you did as a bodybuilder? <laughs> That's a great question. Or we'll weight training, or whatever you were doing. <laughs> yeah, I love to. I love the subject, and and often I talk about it in front of live audiences, and so I'm able to move my body in such a way. So I'm going to do my best to verbally articulate what I'm saying here. If if you can picture you're at the gym and you're on a say a, a machine like um, you know where you're sitting down in a chair and you're lifting, you know you're you're straightening your leg, so you're lifting the weight by straightening your knee basically by um, extending your leg. That's a very robotic motion. In fact, if you think about your day-to-day activity, there's almost nothing you do that's like that. What are you training for then? <laughs> if you think about if you yeah. change the world exercise to if you change the word exercise to training, the question is when you do a bicep curl, what are you training for? Do you pick anything up that way? I mean, when you pick up an apple or an orange or a pencil or a telephone, do you freeze your whole body and bend only 90 degrees at the elbow? Of course not. Nobody does that. What moves like that? Machines move like that. 
Now, we developed all of these modern, this modern weight training style. It was developed during the time where we were first exploring machinery, particularly robotics. And so we translated that over to our bodies. And, and we train ourselves to move like machines. Well, that's great if you're living in society because society wants you to behave like a machine anyway. So perhaps for the masses, that's an excellent form of training. For me, not so. So the training that I do, and, and my uh, partner Alexander and I do you know, most mornings, we're here at home training together. We explore all different types of movements. Some of the things we really like when we want to move weight around for strength training are club bells and kettlebells. And these are types of, of weight apparatus that you move in very natural movements, ways that you'd actually move if you were a hunter-gatherer moving through nature, ways that you use your whole body together rather than trying to isolate muscle groups and joints. Um, we do a lot of jumping type motions. We do a lot of uh, pulling ourselves up kind of motions. We play on, I don't know if you've ever seen an ohm gym, but it's sort of like a, a swing-like apparatus that approximates how you would move through a tree. Um, what I like to do is approximate moving through a natural environment and training my body to get better at that. So what happens is your body becomes springier. It becomes better at moving naturally. It becomes better at moving as one unit rather than moving in isolated robotic motions. Um, that's I'm training for living, not training for um, being a robot. And I just think it's funny when I go to the gym. And I'll tell you, because I used to do bodybuilding, in the bodybuilding mentality, it's get bigger, get bigger, get bigger, get bigger, constantly. How can I put on more mass? And uh, today when I'm around people like that, I find it really funny because I used to see that as a very beautiful body form. And today it seems so kind of almost ridiculous, like, um, all of this muscle mass, but it's all trained to move robotically. So it's, it's so dysfunctional to me. And when I look at natural people, and I've got a great photo on my computer of some Aboriginal people actually from Australia about, um, it must be a 100-year-old photo. Their bodies are so um, solid, rock solid, and they're so chiseled. And it's this kind of muscle mass that you don't see anymore because it's it's got no sponginess to it. It's like it's carved out of, of wood or stone, and they don't work out. <laughs> That's the body built by movement. If you think about the wild animals that you've ever seen and what their body form is like, how muscular they are. Think of a wild cat. Or if you've ever seen, there's a you can see photos of a gorilla that's been shaved or a, or a chimpanzee with no hair. Uh, it's amazing the body mass and the chiseled uh, physiques and the strength of wild animals. And the same is true of indigenous people. Now, a lot of the indigenous people we see today are not living in their natural habitat. They've been pushed onto reservations, and their lifestyles have been changed. So they don't all look that way today. But if we look back, you know, find some of the oldest black and white photos of the aboriginal people, and you're going to see abs and pecs and biceps like you never saw before. Um, that's just their natu that's the result of living naturally. Today, since we live in urban zoos, essentially urban zoos or um, urban kennels, we have to now train ourselves in the same way that if you take a mouse out of its natural environment to keep it fit, you've got to put a wheel in there for it to run on. That's what our gyms are for, and that's what our training is really about. It's because we've got to stay healthy in these sedentary lives. Um, you know, hunter-gatherers are not um, sedentary. They don't have homes. They move around uh, all the time. They move camp all the time. We've got to approximate that in some way, and uh, we don't do that in the gym. The gym is a, literally a place. You know, the other thing I see in the gym is people running on these treadmills that put off so much electromagnetic energy. You know, people are, it's like sort of like having a, a cell phone to your head when you run on the treadmill because the amount of um, the amount of electromagnetic frequency that's emitted from these machines. I mean, so it's actually dangerous. So, you know, ultimately, I think there's so many forms of functional fitness to explore from the martial arts to Pilates to club bells to kettlebells to parkour, which is an amazing emerging form, but just something that approximates natural movement. You've brought up so many things that I want to learn more about, and I'm sure people listening will want to learn more about. So the first question I have is that functional fitness. Do you have a, a video that we can look at on your website that would show us these club bells? Because I can't even imagine this. Um, 
so I want to, you know, I'm a visual. I want to see it. Do you have a video? Or I don't. Do you... I don't because it's not something oh. that. I mean, I'm certainly not. And it's funny. I'm not really an expert in the field, so it's not something I put out there. But if you just put on YouTube or Google um, Club Bell and Kettlebell, you'll see the kettlebells come out of Russia, and it's basically a big steel ball with a handle on it. And the Club Bell, which is really like a heavy baseball bat, and they come in all different weights and. Um, that also, I think, you know, that's an ancient form, an ancient warrior form that we'll, we see from in Russia, we see in India. Um, but these things are all over the Internet because there's huge communities of people doing them. And um, more than likely, if you're anywhere urban, there's people right in the city where you are who teach lessons and whatnot. Well, I'll, I'll look that up. Now, as far as learning more of the concepts that we've just been talking about for the last hour, do you have a book? Do you have a, um, a video, DVD, uh, audio? Do you have any? Can you tell us what you have for us to learn more about what you're talking about? Well, the first thing I'd recommend people do is go to my website, DanielVitalis.com, and um, that's a place where I like to blog about uh, wild food adventures I've been going on. Um, you know, things that I've been harvesting from nature uh, and exploring different types of primitive skills. Um, I'm very interested in, in one of the, one of the things we'll call it is applied archaeology, where you actually practice the things of, of primitive people, and that's something I explore on my website. Um, if somebody goes to YouTube and puts Daniel Vitalis in, you'll find that I've put up uh, countless uh, free videos talking about all these things. And one of the things you'll see there is uh, quite a quite a couple of years of archives, basically of of my um, progression through these ideas as they've developed. There are a couple of DVDs available on DanielVitalis.com um, where I'm giving lectures and or giving demonstrations on how to make blended drinks and things like that um, that are medicinal, so you can find that on my website. Um, and through my website, DanielVitalis.com, you can find – it's a sort of a portal to some of my other websites like FindAspring.com, which is um, you know all the things we've said about food is are equally true about water. And one of the things I'm really interested in is – gathering wild water from the environment. So I've created a website that's a worldwide database of springs. And the way it works is if you know a spring in your area where people can go gather water, you can click the submit button on that website and input that spring data, and it will go live on the Google map there so that other people can use that spring as well. And that's worldwide, not just North America. So you can find that website uh, through DanielVitalis.com as well. And also you can find my uh, nutritional company, Surthrival, which is uh, S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L, where I have uh, created a product line that really supports the lifestyle that I'm talking about, selling really premier adaptogens, really premier immune system medicines, and really premier regenerative foods that I feel really help restore the genes. So all of that stuff is available through my website, DanielVitalis.com. All right. You did um, mention one of your websites, um, and you said it so fast. <laughs> it was to cover... What is it? S U R survival. It's it's sur sur thrival, and it's a word that I've coined. You know, I come out of. Uh, I'm very interested and very intrigued by the survival community because it, it explores so many things that are interesting to me. But the problem with the survival community is that they're obsessed with uh, the end of the world. They're obsessed with needing to fight things, and they're obsessed with just getting by or not quite having enough. And I don't like that idea of lack. When you did the intro, you mentioned about abundance, and that's really important to me. So I coined a word, surthrival. It's got the word thrive in it. And so the word surthrival is like thriving no matter what's going on. And I coined that because for me, when I look out at the world at large today, it's a bit like a Mad Max film right now. I mean, we have, you know, we have nuclear reactors melting down, oil spilling into the sea, mass degeneration, a pharmaceutically zombified population roaming the streets, mindlessly consuming, filling the ocean with plastic. This is a survival situation, and rather than just surviving here, my intention is to fully thrive here. And so I coined the word Surthrival, S-U-R-T-H-R-I-V-A-L, and I created a company around it, and I operate that company here out of the United States, but we sell all over the world um, very, very high-end premier products, um, unique products from ecosystems like um, the antler velvet from elk. We do uh, the 
pollen from pine, which is very rich in testosterone. We do a colostrum product. We do a couple of medicinal mushroom products, and we do them um, as well as they can be done. And we sell them to a very discerning audience of people who understand the power, the regenerative power of these substances. Um, so that's one of the things I educate on, and that's um, my main company that I operate. And the rest of the websites, DanielVitalis.com, findaspring.com, are not really commercial sites as much as they're educational. Yeah. Uh, look, I'm I'm going to go look at them after we finish speaking. Look, now I have one more question for you, and then we'll we will finish up. Um, and I ask this question to a lot of people that do what you're doing. Like you're out there, you're um, doing things that are different. You're acting differently. And you're making it public and trying to educate people. So the question I have for you is this. Why is this so important to you? Mm, that's a fantastic question. Um, more and more, uh, as I mature in what I'm doing, uh, the answer becomes clearer and clearer. And it's because I really think that human beings, homo sapiens, that we're actually very beautiful and that we're... We're so unique, we're so special, and we really do have a, a role in our ecosystem. And just like part of the ecosystem collapses when any species is extinct, when we walk away from our natural environment, actually the earth suffers by that. Some of the Native American tribes talk about how when human beings stop eating wild food from the environment, the environment falls into decay that it needs us in there the same way that it needs every other organism there to fulfill its role. And uh, when I look around me, I'm saddened by how misanthropic we've become, the way that we actually have seemed to hate ourselves as a species, the way we think that we're inherently bad for the planet, the way that we think that all we do is destroy. It's not really true. And I feel like what I'm out there doing is trying to shake people and say, hey, guess what? You Remember, you're actually beautiful. You have a, a beautiful role on this planet. You're created to be here just like everything else. And if we can remember who we really are and what we really are, we, can, um, we could live on such an abundant planet where we all live in so much joy and freedom and bliss, and we don't have to suffer like this. And... Um, I'm just committed to sharing that message with people because um, I, I think that if I stopped, I would feel I would. I, it's my purpose, and I have to do it. Well, thank you, Daniel, for spending time with Changing Habits and myself and, and sharing your wealth of wisdom and you, the way you think differently. Um, if people want more information about you, they can go to your website, which is danielvitalis.com and we at Changing Habits believe that every human being has the right to be healthy. We provide people with logical, reliable and ethical information and tools that are not constrained by society, false foods and damaging technology. We believe in the power of people um, and we can achieve, within, we, we actually can achieve incredible results um, not only with Changing Habits but with Daniel and, and everybody else out there like that. So Start to educate yourself, start thinking differently, start acting differently, and happy changing habits, everybody. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's podcast. Now, having Cindy share what she knows around health and well-being, I don't think it actually gets to look any better than that. And I think that we're pretty lucky that she's willing to reveal some of the interviews that she's done over the last 12 months, all designed to help people enhance their lives and to create much better health and well-being inside of their families, inside of themselves and with the people that they know and love. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast, head on over to our website at all the W's dot thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat and you can post all of your comments there. Also, go ahead and send your messages to us via our Facebook group, all the W's dot facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. And we're going to see you here same time, same station next week with more from Cindy on health and well-being and the interviews that she's done. So we'll join you here and we're going to look so forward to sharing the ride with you where we get to create a ripple effect that's changing the world. We'll see you again. Bye, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.